Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's great to see you all this morning. It's great to be with you again in the house of the Lord, and what a glorious day it is. And uh, we worship God, and we thank him for the chance uh, to be together uh, yet again. Well, uh, this morning we're back to our study in the Sermon on the Mount after a couple of weeks off in a message that I am uh, calling, What About My Rights? Uh, That's Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42 uh, that Lloyd read for us. Uh, having a little trouble with this thing, so you might have to advance my slides for me back there, Brooks. Um, next one, please. Uh, Lord, be, before we begin, let's get into prayer. Uh, Lord, we, we ask you for your grace for this morning. Uh, Lord, that we might understand uh, what it is that you have for us today, Lord. Uh, Lord, may we hear the word and may we be truly changed by it. We pray that your Holy Spirit will do this work. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Okay. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. Do you understand these rights that I have just read to you? And if you understand them, do you still wish to talk to me? Well, some of you men in the room may have heard these words before from law enforcement. Uh, maybe some of you women even, uh, too. I don't mean to discriminate, so uh, who knows? But if you hear those words, those words are known as your Miranda rights. Uh, and these words are given to you because you have been arrested, because you are suspected of committing a crime, and the police intend to question you. Now, if you hear those words, don't call me uh, unless you want somebody to pray for you because I am out of that business now. Uh, But if you do hear those words from law enforcement, uh, you need to know that you have rights. Uh, You have the right to remain silent. And that comes from the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution that says that you shall not be compelled uh, to give testimony against yourself in a criminal case. And then the second part comes from the Sixth Amendment, Uh, The right to a lawyer comes from the Sixth Amendment that says that uh, if you are a criminal in a criminal prosecution, you have the right to legal counsel to assist you in the defense of that case. And so these amendments were made part of the Constitution because uh, the country is interested in protecting the rights of individuals against the state, which of course is much more powerful than the individual. And these laws are meant to limit the power of the state so that they can't overreach and abuse us. And so a police have to tell us our constitutional rights before they begin to question us. They have to tell you that you have a right to a lawyer. They have to tell you that you have the right to remain silent. And if they don't, then your confession can be thrown out because you weren't given your rights. And that's because the common man is not expected to know what his constitutional rights are. And so if you are given your Miranda rights at any point in time, it's a really good idea for you to actually exercise those rights. This is a time when you should use your rights because the state is much more powerful than you. The police have the advantage. The police have the leverage. And the smartest thing to do is to be quiet, ask for a lawyer, and get some help. Well... Our passage today is when a Christian uh, should be discerning about using his rights, when when he should limit the use of the rights that he has, as opposed to a criminal or somebody who's been accused of a crime who should always exercise those rights that are available to him. So we're going to start today with uh, a bit of explanation about what Moses taught about the law, particularly about an eye for an eye. 
Uh, and we see that as we study the New Testament, to me it's just amazing, the more we study the New Testament and understand what it is that is being taught in the New Testament, how much more relevant the Old Testament becomes. And we'll see that in this passage today. Uh, in the Old Testament, God was concerned about protecting the rights of individuals too. And so Jesus stated briefly the law in verse 38. He said, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus was actually quoting from three Old Testament passages that contain uh, this Old Testament language, this tit-for-tat form of justice. And the first is from Exodus chapter 21. Uh, but if there is injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. The next passage is from Leviticus chapter 24. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so shall it be inflicted on him. And finally, Deuteronomy chapter 19. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, these laws may seem barbaric to us these days. Like if somebody accidentally pokes your eye out, are we really going to demand that their eye be poked out uh, in response? That's not how we do justice anymore. But there are two things that I want us to understand from uh, the, the, the law of the time. Uh, if we're really going to understand what Jesus was saying and what he meant in this teaching today. And the first is that what was going on with this law of Moses was that it was meant to actually limit the amount of justice or vengeance or retribution that could come uh, when somebody had done someone wrong. So back in those days, it was not uncommon. Like uh, if someone from one tribe murdered somebody from another tribe, uh, this tribe would rise up and go and slaughter this entire tribe back again as retribution. And that is certainly uh, over-the-top justice, right? Instead of just uh, bringing retribution on the murderer himself, the entire tribe would be wiped out. So this law of Moses was intended to limit the amount of justice that could happen. And then the second thing was that when the offended party uh, had some wrong done to him, uh, the offended party was well within his rights to demand justice, but he had to demand justice from the courts, uh, this was not the idea that you could go around exacting individual personal vendettas uh, in order to get even. But uh, as, as time progressed, we'll see that this is exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching. Uh, over time, uh, the religious leaders changed the whole perspective of the law of an eye for an eye. And instead of uh, having it be the right of the court to exact justice, uh, the, the obligation to punish became a, a right almost of individuals to go and seek personal vendettas and personal vengeance. And this uh, thought of an eye for an eye became a personal attitude, uh, an attitude that reflected an individual's uh, right, or so he thought, to personal liberty and freedom. And that person would not tolerate the slightest injustice or slight against themselves. And they always put their rights and themselves first. And so when Jesus said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Again, like we've seen so many times in the Sermon on the Mount already, he wasn't uh, canceling the law. He wasn't abolishing the law. Remember, Jesus said, I came to, ab uh, to, to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. 
And so he was not canceling the law. He was, again, upholding the law. It's still the obligation of the state to uphold the law uh, and to punish wrongdoing. But he was teaching that a Christian doesn't always have to exercise his rights. So as we think about what Jesus taught, our passage today is about when a Christian should or should not exercise his rights. It's about his attitude towards his rights more than anything. And Jesus was saying that we ought to have the uh, attitude of forsaking justice uh, sometimes, and that we have to abandon the idea that every wrong against us must be righted. And instead of the law of justice, that is the obligation of the state, we don't necessarily have to insist on that. We don't uh, resist the wicked man. We live by the law of love so that good may overcome evil. And that's what it looks like to have our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus used four illustrations to drive this point home. And the first one is contained in verse 39, where he says, essentially, don't retaliate. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So you have to think about this. Most people are right-handed. So if you're going to take a slap on your right cheek, somebody has to slap you backhanded across your right cheek. And if you received a slap like that in this culture, that was about the gravest insult that you could possibly suffer. It would be much more dignified for the person uh, who was the victim of this slap to actually take a punch directly in the face to be slapped rather than to be slapped backhanded across the face. That was a, a lack of dignity. And, and if you received an insult like that, you would want a whole lot more retribution than a simple uh, slap back across the face because of the indignity that such an insult carried with it. And so Jesus was saying that in this situation, you not only have to forego your right to retaliate, but beyond that, you have to turn to him the other cheek also so he can slap you on that cheek as well. Well, that would be so countercultural in first century Israel because it was an honor-shame society. And uh, it's hard for us as Americans to understand exactly uh, how uh, deeply rooted this was in uh, this society to do everything possible not to ever suffer any kind of shame. That was the, the main goal in an honor-shame society. But as disciples of Jesus, we have to be willing to suffer shame for his name. No one endured more shame than Jesus. He was hung naked publicly on a cross and died for our sins. And there was no more shameful way to die. And that's why the Romans killed people like this, because it was supposed to be a deterrent to future crimes. And you certainly didn't want to be up there on a cross naked and dying for the whole world to see. Now, Jesus was on that cross. Certainly, he had the power to stop it, right? He's God. He could have stopped it at any point in the proceedings. And he certainly could have retaliated from the cross. He could have struck down every person there dead on the site. On the site. Uh, but if he did that, how would he have achieved the salvation of mankind? Instead, he prayed for them. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When a Christian forgoes retaliation, he shows the love of Christ, the love that Christ showed when he hung on the cross, and he shows that he trusts God. God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so a Christian 
doesn't have to uh, seek retaliation for every insult. A Christian can bear any insult and can tolerate any indignity because he knows that Jesus did the same for him. Now, this doesn't diminish the government's role to exact justice and to uphold justice. The, the, the government has to punish crime or society would dissolve into chaos and anarchy because uh, people don't always live by the law. And this also doesn't mean that we should intolerate in, uh, that we should tolerate injustice. If we see injustice, it's okay for us to stand up to it. Jesus did it all the time when he was trying to take care of the poor and when he overturned the, temp the table of the money changers in the temple because they were desecrating the temple. That's what Jesus was doing. Uh, so we should stand up for what is right and we should stand up for the rights of others, uh, but we should also be willing to suffer indignity uh, for the sake of Jesus and for the gospel. You know, a few years ago, we had a, a, a gigantic dead tree on our lawn and uh, we hoped that the tree was sleeping, but it was not sleeping. It was really, really dead. And uh, somebody from our neighborhood called the HOA to complain, and we had a pretty good idea of who it was. And so it took all of our might not to be out there with our tape measure, measuring their grass and their bushes so that we could exact revenge on them with the homeowners association. Uh, but we didn't do that. We cut our tree down, uh, replaced it with a beautiful Baylor flag and, uh, to represent where our daughter's going to school. And uh, so that's how we responded. But we really, uh, deep in our human hearts, wanted to exact revenge. But we're not supposed to do that as Christians. Uh, when we when we seek revenge for every wrong done to us, we look a whole lot like the world. Uh, but when we turn the other cheek, we look a whole lot more like Christ. So we don't retaliate. That's the first illustration. Second, we don't always demand our rights. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 40. Uh, if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Well, the tunic was the undergarment, the garment that stayed closest to your skin. Uh, and the cloak was the outer garment, the, the garment that you wore over your tunic. Uh, and during the day, it served as kind of a coat. And at night, it served as your blanket. Uh, and under the law of Moses, it was almost like our houses today. Like you could pledge your cloak and nobody had the right to take your cloak from you. So like, a, uh, like with a mortgage, you could, you could pledge it, but the owner of the cloak always had a right to get that cloak back at night. And again, we see the foundations of this in the Old Testament. Uh, Exodus chapter 22 uh, says, if you ever take uh, your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And then next, Deuteronomy 24, 13. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it will be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. Now, to put this in perspective, I want you to think about your own closets. You and I most likely have more than one coat uh, that we can wear. Uh, but the average person back then only had one. And he also didn't have multiple quilts and comforters and blankets or, and other th kinds of things that he could sleep in. His cloak was all he had. Now about tunics, uh, I think I probably have a hundred shirts, maybe uh, between what's in my closet and what's in my dresser drawer. Uh, not mon many of them are less than 10 year years old, but still, uh, I have a lot of shirts. Uh, back then, they might have had two tunics, maybe three tunics, certainly not an abundance of tunics. 
And so uh, they could barely afford to part with a tunic, and they certainly could not afford uh, to part with their cloak at all. And yet, now here is Jesus saying, when somebody sues you for your tunic, you're to give him your cloak also. Now, why do we have to give more than that person even asked for? Well, it's similar to the first illustration about turning the other cheek. A Christian does not insist on his rights. He goes above and beyond what is asked. He might have a a legal defense to the lawsuit for his tunic, but rather than uh, raising that legal defense or filing a countersuit for the other person's tunic, he goes above and beyond by giving his cloak also for good measure. Now, I'm not saying a Christian can never file a lawsuit or use the courts uh, to gain retribution for a wrong done, but I'm saying that a Christian should be very discerning. Uh, The law protects all people's rights, but a Christian must be prepared to abandon his rights. You remember the teaching of Paul. It says, why are you suing each other? Why not just settle on the way? Why is it not better to be wronged uh, than to go to court? So we have to be discerning about it. Uh, And so this law about the tunic applies not only to tunics and not only to cloaks, but it applies to our own lives when you think about it. Uh, Jesus calls us to be prepared to to lose our own life for him. And if that's the call of Jesus, then really when we're talking about a cloak, we're talking about nothing, right, compared to our own lives. You have to give up your rights sometimes if you're going to display the righteousness of Christ. And we look different when we give each other grace. At Jesus' trial, you'll remember, uh, the high priest was trying to elicit testimony so that they convict, could convict Jesus of blasphemy and arrest him and hopefully have him crucified by the Romans. But the high priest was frustrated because he couldn't get any testimony that was going to work. This guy said one thing, this guy said the other thing. Uh, the testimony was inconsistent and contradictory. Uh, And Jesus, sitting there, is listening to this, and he knows that if he's going to fulfill his role to save mankind, he has to be convicted of this crime. And so what does he do? He foregoes his rights, and he gives personally himself the testimony that is needed to convict him. The high priest said, I adjure you by the living God, tell us uh, whether you are Christ, the Son of God. Jesus didn't have to answer. He had the right to remain silent. He could have not opened his mouth and he would not have been convicted. But instead, knowing what would happen, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 64, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, that was an unmistakable claim to deity that they all recognized from Daniel chapter 7. Every person there who heard that testimony knew what Jesus was saying. And so the high priest responds, He tore his robes and said, what further need do we have of testimony? He has blasphemed. Jesus gave them what they needed so they could convict him because Jesus uh, forewent his rights and, and did not hold to what he could have held to because he had a job to do because his role was to serve as the savior of mankind. We display his righteousness when we renounce our rights for the sake of love. So don't always demand your rights. The third illustration is in verse 41. Go above and beyond your duty. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now to understand this one, we're going to have to understand a little bit about the Roman law of conscription. The word for force there in this verse Uh, is from the Greek word agoreo, 
which comes from a Persian word which means to carry. Now the Persians had a very intricate system of mail delivery. They had a mail carrying service like our US Postal Service today. Uh, and so what the Agarillo did was he delivered mail along various points during his route, and all along his route there would be food and water stations set up. And if it came to a point where he needed something, if there was no food, if there was no water, perhaps he got sick or he got injured, whatever, he could not continue his route that day, he had the right to uh, conscript or to force a private citizen to give him food or shelter or even to deliver that mail himself if he was unable for whatever reason uh, to deliver that mail. And so because of that, the word agario came to mean any time the government forced you into some kind of labor. Uh, and so when you're talking about this word force, it has the connotation of the government forcing you to do something. Now, remember that the Romans, of course, were in charge. They were in control of Israel at this time, and the Jews were subject to their laws. And the Romans had the right to force Jews into service. And you'll remember that when Simon of Cyrene was asked or made to carry Jesus' cross, that's exactly what happened. The Romans conscripted him to carry uh, Jesus' cross for him. And the Romans had a large army. They had tons of supplies, tons of things that needed to be moved all the time. They needed shelter from time to time. And Roman law said that they could force the Jews to carry something for one mile. And that's the context of Jesus' statement. You, could, you have to carry something for a mile. That was the law. So it's about service. It's about uh, being called into service. So what should our attitude be when we are called into service uh, by someone else? We have two choices. On the one hand, we can be bitter uh, and we can be uh, upset about it and we can uh, begrudgingly do the bare minimum with a bitter heart. That's one thing we can do. Or, on the other hand, we can go above and beyond what we've been asked to do uh, with a joyful and happy heart and a generous heart. And so when Jesus said, go with him two miles, he really wasn't limiting uh, our obligation of how far to go with him. When he said two miles, he didn't mean just go two miles any more than when he said to Peter, forgive your brother 70 times, seven times. He was putting a limit on that. He was not. He was saying it's unlimited, just as... Our obligation to forgive is unlimited. Uh, our obligation to go with someone as far as they need us to go is also unlimited. Now, of course, in the United States, it's a shameful thing to be made to do anything, right? We are Americans. We are free. Nobody tells us what to do or where to serve or where to go and when to do it. Is that really true, though? Uh, every day we do things we don't want to do, right? We get up and we go to work. Uh, we pay bills we don't want to pay. Uh, we attend events that we would rather not attend. We uh, pay our bills. We clean the house uh, sometimes. Uh, we do the food shopping. We run errands. We do all these things that we don't want to do. Sometimes our friends ask us to help them move. Uh, sometimes our friends ask, them, ask us to pick them up from the airport. Uh, we're, we're sometimes asked to do things we don't want to do, and we can do those things with a happy heart, or we can be bitter about it and, and the, the, the law of Christ is to do things and to do them with a happy heart, with love for our brother who asks. And so Christians should display a heart of service and joyful service at that. We should do even more than is asked of us. My brother Steve is a person like this. 
uh, you can ask him anything. And before you're even done asking the question, he says yes. He doesn't even need to hear what it is that you're asking of him. Uh, he may, it may inconvenience him greatly. He may not even have the ability to do what you ask him, but he's going to figure it out because he has a heart that says, yes, I want to help, I want to serve. Uh, and that's what Christian duty and service looks like. Uh, the alternative is to do the bare minimum with a scowl on our face all the time, and nobody wants to be around a person like that. <clears throat> when we do this, we lack the joy of being a Christian, and, and we're not attractive to others. But when we serve with joy, uh, we uh, people will be attracted to us, and they'll be attracted to Christianity. So go above and beyond your duty. <clears throat> and finally, give above and beyond your duty. Verse 42. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Well, so far, Jesus has said, don't seek retaliation or revenge. Don't insist on your rights. Always serve beyond what you have been asked to do with a happy heart. But if we haven't been rankled and ruffled already by what Jesus has said, now, once he starts messing with our wallets, now we start to get really defensive. An eye-for-an-eye attitude can't give generously. An eye-for-an-eye attitude is always wondering, what's in it for me by giving this gift? What can I get uh, if I give this gift? How much interest can I extract uh, if I give this loan? And this principle is really hard for a Christian because as Christians, we really want to help. And there's no shortage of people who need our help. And if we gave to all who asked, we would starve to death, right? There would be nobody left to give to us and no money left in our accounts to pay our own food budgets. And I'm sure that all of you know at least 10 causes you'd like to give to, and you probably know five to 10 missionaries you'd like to support. Uh, but unfortunately, we can't afford to give to everyone. But there's that kind of giving, the kind of giving that we want to do, and then there's also the kind of giving that we don't want to do. Right? One of the things I dread the most in the world is coming up to a traffic light and being the first car in line, and there's a panhandler standing there on the corner, and he's asking uh, for a handout. I, I, I hate when that happens to me. When we were in Austin a couple, uh, I guess about a month ago, for Brian's orientation, it seemed like there was one on every single corner. And, I never know what to do, uh, to give or not to give. That is the great question to me. Uh, I always say that I'm going to go to McDonald's and buy a pile of $10 gift cards so I have them in my wallet so I can hand them out uh, to a person at the corner, but I never remember to do it, and then when I'm caught in that situation, uh, I'm stuck in a difficult spot, and uh, I don't give. I, I instead you know, fool around with my radio or look at my phone or pretend that I don't see him, uh, and I think probably most of us do that, but it's difficult because we don't want to be played for a fool, right? We don't want to uh, give the guy a 20 and then watch him go spend it on drugs instead of spending it on food. And in Austin, even if I had gone to McDonald's to, to buy all these gift cards, they would have been gone on about a mile and a half stretch of road anyway with five traffic lights. So it's a really difficult situation. What are we supposed to do? Well, again, uh, Jesus is teaching us it's all about the attitude of a Christian. What kind of attitude are we going to have? The whole Sermon on the Mount so far has been about how to be blessed, right? Through an attitude of being poor in spirit, mourning our sin, being meek, being pure in heart, 
being a, pa- a peacemaker, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and then by living it out, by having our uh, righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And as we've said, it's not a different degree of righteousness, not being more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. It's a different kind of righteousness, the kind of righteousness that Jesus has. And so Jesus kept on providing these illustrations of what it looks like to have your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It's not only that we can't murder, we can't even harbor a malicious thought towards someone. It's not only that we can't commit adultery, we can't even look at someone with a lustful thought in our minds. And here, it's not only that we don't insist on our rights, but we act as though we have no rights. Everything we have, we give our time, our talent, our treasure, our money when asked. And this shows the attitude of a heart that is willing to sacrifice like Jesus sacrificed for us. Now, we can't give to everybody who we'd like to give to, but we should want to. And we should be giving until it hurts. Uh, God can pour nothing into a clenched fist, but into an open hand he can pour abundant treasure. And God has made it clear since the beginning that he cares about the poor, and we should be concerned about the things that God cares about. We should give beyond the tithe as the Holy Spirit directs. We should give to organizations that are committed to serving the poor. We ourselves should be personally serving the poor in a soup kitchen or, or however else we can serve. Our interest should not be in preserving what we have, but in pouring those blessings out to others. But if we have an eye-for-an-eye attitude, we're only going to be interested in hoarding God's blessings for ourselves rather than helping others in need. And we have poor people all around us. And sometimes I confess that putting uh, food on my table is more important to me than helping the poor. I would like to have the attitude that it's better to be fooled by a hundred people who are pretending to have need rather than to miss the one person who really has need. And I think that's the attitude that Jesus wants us to have. And I need to work on this. And maybe some of you need to work on this too. Uh, When we find our security in money, Uh, then it's giving sacrificially is almost impossible. But when we find our security in Jesus Christ, then anything is possible. So let's look then at Jesus, our example. The great principle of this passage is that we should not have an eye for an eye attitude. We should not always be seeking retaliation or revenge or justice or be looking out for ourselves. It's better never to seek retaliation, uh, never to insist on our rights, and always to go beyond the duty that we have, both in service and in giving. So as we review this list, again, we see that the Sermon on the Mount calls us to an absolutely impossible standard. So what we need to do is we need to live with a Christ-like attitude. Back up one, if you would, Brooks. Uh, We don't even... We, don't, we, we, we realize that, that we don't even want to do the things that Jesus calls us to do, and how much less will we actually do them since we don't even want to do them to begin with? Well, let's remember that Jesus sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane because he was going to do something that in his humanity he didn't want to do either. Uh, out of his love for us, he did what he had to do to purchase the redemption of our souls He allowed himself to be treated as a criminal without any rights, and he uh, gave us an example that we should do the same. So we need to live with this Christ-like attitude. And secondly, I want us to, to look at these commands from God's perspective. 
You know, we tend to look at these commands from our perspective, don't we? From our point of view, as though we are the ones who are being slapped across the face or forced to go an extra mile or forced to give up our cloak or forced to give more than we want to. But think about God now as the offended party and us, you and me, as the offenders. Uh, We are sinners and we sin against God daily and we require God to turn the other cheek, to give up his cloak, to go the extra mile and to keep on giving to us and we often take God's grace for granted. God certainly has the right to retaliation and to revenge, but God never takes his revenge on us. He never gives us justice. He gives us mercy. Justice would require that we die for the sin that we have committed against God, but mercy means that we have life everlasting because we believe that Jesus died for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserve, and he rose from the dead, conquering death forever. So the next time that we are offended or insulted uh, in person or by social media or however you might be insulted these days, the next time we're cheated or required to do more than we think is fair, uh, we need to think about what Jesus did for us. And only if we look at these commands from that perspective will we be able to see how gracious that God has been to us. And only then will we be able, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to do what Jesus commanded. Lord God, we thank you for your word. It is so challenging, Lord. It is so challenging week after week as we go through the Sermon on the Mount and see just how high the bar is for us to have the righteousness that is required, Lord. And knowing that we can never achieve it in our own power, Lord, we are so thankful for the sacrifice that you made on the cross because you provided what was lacking. And Lord, we're just so grateful that because we have placed our faith in you, we know that we have eternal life with you in heaven, Lord. And we thank you for these things, Lord. We thank you for your word and what it teaches us every week. In Jesus' name, amen.